Amen, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for the, the guarantee that you are working in us and, and through us. This, this whole thing, this, when this race is complete, when each one of us dies, that we will, or as we are on even our deathbeds, and we look back to see that you carried us through it all. And to this we hold that our only hope is Jesus, that the shepherd will defend us day in and day out. Thank you for that truth. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful song for your people, Lord, as we gather in worship. We ask for your help as we continue to worship as your word is opened. For your sake, Lord, and for your glory, would you minister to our hearts? Would you open up that door? Pray that there uh, would be open hearts this morning, that there are many of us, including me, that come in with all sorts of thoughts right now, all sorts of things that are wanting to prevent us from hearing your word. Would you right now overcome those things, dominate them, so we might hear your word, receive it, and worship through it. To continue your work of sanctification, your work of making us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you are three through ten, you are released to your classrooms. Miss Lindsay and Miss Rochelle are over there in the back to receive the three and four year olds. And the five through tens can come through the front door, Mr. Riley and Mr. Michael and Miss Cheryl. Some of the exits are more precious than others. Ah, that's hard every single time. If you have a Bible, let's turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And my name is Josh. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I just want to say thank you for coming today. I know that everything that is natural outside was telling you to stay home, but you braved the weather, the serious weather this morning. I mean, about an hour and a half ago, it was intense. So really thank you guys for, uh, for prioritizing uh, worship today, to get here, to join together as the flock, as we, as we hear God's word and celebrate his, his son being alive. By the way, happy Palm Sunday. This, is a, this, is a good, this starts Holy Week, uh, and so we get to, for the next seven days, really begin to think about the final week of Jesus' life. Today, we're going to actually look at a story. A story that comes just a few days before the final week of Jesus' life in John chapter 11. And this is one of the most incredible, spectacular, can't believe it's in the Bible stories. There it comes. There it is. Uh, and this, is, this, this story uh, takes place right before Jesus uh, is introduced into Jerusalem as the king at the triumphal entry. And outside of the cross and the resurrection, I would say this is one of the most spectacular things you could, you could ever uh, read and believe. And this story all begins with an urgent message. Jesus was sitting with his disciples out in the desert. And as they were there together, a man from Bethany met them there. 
And you could see it in his eyes. It wasn't good. He was sent by the sisters, Mary and Martha. These two women were like family to Jesus. They loved him, and he loved them. And not only them, but also their brother, Lazarus. And Lazarus was why the courier had arrived that day. His message was simple, but it was pressing. In verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, he, he who you, whom you love is, is ill. It was the kind of sickness that kills. It was the kind of sickness that wrecks a family. But Jesus already knew. See, the man sitting there that day was the Lord of time. He knew exactly that this moment would come. And so he serenely responds in verse 4, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now pause, right here, right away, wake up. What did Jesus just say? It is for the glory of God. What was for the glory of God? Lazarus' sickness. Now, can he say that? Can Jesus actually say that Lazarus' sickness is for the glory of God? Can he actually say that God is using sickness for his glory? Can he actually say that God uses the brokenness of this world to display his own greatness? Well, not only is Jesus saying that he can, he's saying that he is. See, God is, this is, this is the foundation for the rest of this story. God is the Lord over brokenness. God's reign is not and must not be limited to good things only in our lives. We have found that God is the Lord over hurricanes. He is the Lord over cancer. He is the Lord over unemployment. He is the Lord over tragedy. His jurisdiction knows no bounds. So let us not, we must not settle for a small God. Let us seek the God whose ways are higher, as we just read, whose thoughts are higher, and whose plans cannot be stopped by anything, including hardship in this life. Okay, so back to the story. Okay, so verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I want to read that again. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, and that word there is therefore. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We have to stop again. This is so interesting, and it is important. And John is brilliant. Do you see what he just did? He sandwiches the deep love that Jesus has for these siblings, in verse 5, with his intentional, don't miss that, intentional decision to delay his coming. Instead of going right as he heard their urgent message, Jesus camps out for two more days. What's he saying there? What's John trying to show us in that moment? When you see this in your notes, 
This is the principle underneath that, those two couple verses. That we have to be slow to translate our circumstances as evidence of how God feels about us. Be slow to translate your circumstances in this life, right now even, as evidence of how God feels about you. See, John shows us that Christ's love for this family is the basis for his delay. He lets, this is crazy to think about, he lets Lazarus linger in sickness. He lets pain abide a while longer. And John tells us it's because he loves Lazarus? How can that be? How do we make sense of that? How is it possible to see God the Son withhold relief from Lazarus' life and call it love in verse 5? And you know what my answer is? My short answer, my immediate answer? I have no idea. I have no clue. But you see, this is where I go wrong a lot, too often. I often think this way. Things are happening in my life because God is either happy with me, he's rewarding me, or he's angry with me and so he's punishing me. And so I, I assess the circumstances of my life. God must be happy with me. God must be angry with me. And while God certainly does train us as a father, in Hebrews chapter 12 we see that, we should be careful with that train of thought. As his people, we must hold to what his word already says about us. His word says that God has set his love upon us and that nothing can stop that. It is sealed. It is final. So Christian, you are united to Jesus by faith. The affections of the Father have been poured out on you, listen, no matter what your circumstances are. Whether life is breezy or whether life is one big perpetual heartache. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, you can know, you must know that God loves you. And so instead, instead of translating our circumstances, our life's circumstances, as evidence for how God feels about us, we should do this instead. Hold fast to what God's Word says about you. Hold fast to what God's Word says about you. The events of this life, whether good or evil, whether bright or bleak, are for the glory of God and for our good. And so when we often don't exactly know how hard things in this life are for our good, we can rest in the unchanging, can't separate it from us, love of Christ. That's so important for us. That's so important for what is about to happen in the story of Lazarus. Okay, so let's, let's jump to verse 11. Jump to verse 11. So Jesus shares a, few, a teaching moment with his disciples. We don't have time for that this morning. But after saying those things, he said to them, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to be fine. He'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they had thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Guys, Lazarus has died. <laughs> and for your sake, notice this, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. This is a man that he calls his friend. This is a man that John tells us he loves. And he just says, I am glad that I was not there. 
so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So much here. But let's, let's think about this. So two days have gone by now. And back, back those two days ago, we just saw, or just heard Jesus say that Lazarus would not die because of this illness, verse 4. And yet, verse 14, he just died. Okay, so on top of that, Jesus says that he's glad that Lazarus has died. Jesus wants to keep God's glory at the forefront. The only way to make sense of the story is to remember that God is radically God-centered. That's the only way to even figure out why Jesus is thinking and saying the things that he's saying. God is radically God-centered. He has set upon his own glory. He is committed to, what, to, to revealing what he's like. The things that have happened to Lazarus are not about Lazarus. They're about the living God. And the things that are happening to me and to you are not about us. They're about the living God. Let me show you what I mean. So Jesus finally arrives in Bethany. Another two days go by. Only two miles away from Jerusalem. That's what John tells us. And that's an important thought, that Jesus is only two miles away from Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? That Jesus can sense the cross at this point? While everyone else in this story has Lazarus on their minds, Jesus has something else altogether. Jesus has a, a different death on his mind. He's preparing for a greater death, his death, a death that's going to give us life. And so as he draws near, Martha comes out to meet him. Lazarus, her brother, has now been dead for four days. Martha's eyes are dry, but her heart is torn. And she initiates a conversation with Jesus in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Okay, so remember, this woman is close with Jesus. There is a healthy intimacy. There's a healthy friendship between the, them two. She calls him Lord. He is her master. She knows Jesus. She loves Jesus. But even still, her heart needs explanation. She doesn't understand. Lord Jesus, where were you four days ago? But even still, she knows that Jesus is able to do anything because of who he is. And Jesus assures her, your brother's going to rise again, he says. But she misunderstands that. She knows the truth that one day, we can, see, we can study this in John 5 and 6, but she knows the, the truth that one day he will rise again, but she wants more than that. She wants to bring her brother back now. But Jesus is chasing after her heart. In fact, he's even let her brother die and her and her sister mourn so that he might have them. Jesus is going through all of this so that he might own them. Jesus is doing something in the midst of their suffering and he's doing something in the midst of our suffering verse 24 mary or Mar excuse me martha says to him i know that he lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day and jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life what a cosmic statement right there i am i am am. I am your living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am God, is what Jesus just said. Jesus identifies himself as the great God of all. Jesus 
moves Martha's mind and heart away from Lazarus and onto himself. See, no one else can do that. It would be very selfish for any one of us when we're meeting someone in their suffering to draw attention to ourselves, but not Jesus. He is fully righteous to draw us away from our suffering and say, look at me. No one else can wipe away your tears and say, I am. Jesus requires our heart, even in suffering, especially in suffering. He wants our attention. He wants us to look at him for all that he is, and we're going to find out that it's quite a thrilling view. Now, he identifies himself very specifically. I am what? The resurrection and the life. Each one of those words has meanings for us. And so, but remember the scene. Don't forget it. Jesus is surrounded by loss. He's surrounded by suffering and grief. He's surrounded by hardship. And so he is here to provide hope right now in this moment with what he has just said. This message, this story is about hope. So the first thing he says is that he is the resurrection. And then he explains it, because what I'm thinking of the first time I read that is, okay, you are the resurrection. What does that even mean? And so he, but he explains himself in verse, the back half of verse 25. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So this is the first hope that we have. It's a future hope. Hey, Martha, belief in me. Kneeling before me as your Lord gives eternal hope, gives you eternal hope that this life is not the end. Now let's not ignore why this is such a good hope. Jesus says, anyone, whoever, right, though he die, what is Jesus saying? That each one of us faces a very stark reality at the end of our lives. Death. Physical death. This is because of the brokenness of the world. Death exists because of sin. Disaster and disease exist because of sin. This is what we could call natural evil. It's what happened because of the garden. It is inescapable. And this is what the Apostle Paul calls this age. He, calls, he uses it in a couple different places. This age, the old age, the way things currently are. And Jesus is saying, your only hope in this mess, because that's what it, it's a mess. Your only hope in this mess, the only hope for your life is me. Though there are real and devastating and horrible things that happen, though, as Paul says, we are wasting away, we have a hope. We have a final hope. Jesus, this is so good, this is the very core of what makes a Christian happy. Jesus is asserting his power to raise us up out of the grave at the end of time. He is both the source, like the, he's, he's the plug-in, and he is the cause of the great resurrection day. On that day, he is going to call us out, and we are going to be given perfect bodies. I'm not going to jam my thumb anymore. I'm not going to pull my back out anymore. I'm not going to decay and die anymore. I'm going to be given a perfect body forever. That's cool. That's really cool. And he can do it. Only he can do it. Jesus is alone the source, the power, and the cause of the resurrection of the end of time and the effects of sin. The reason you get a cold next week, the reason one of, your, the, one of the people that you treasure in your life dies, 
the reason you can't explain a car accident on Highway 98, all of that's going to go away. And we're going to smile a lot. Because it's all over. The junk is going to be gone. Hope is for us who believe in the Lord. And for, this, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, death does not have the final word. And so who are the only people who don't have to fear death? Christians. If I wasn't a believer in Jesus, I would be terrified of death. And that's why we see funerals that can't even speak about it anymore. We, we, see, we see someone pass away. We don't even talk about them passing away because the world has no hope for this moment. And so we cover it up and we bury it and we just keep on moving. But Christians can stare at death in the face and say, you don't own me. You don't own me. Christ owns me. Praise God that Jesus is the resurrection. Okay, and then he adds to that. He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he explains that in verse 26. Whoever lives, excuse me, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And the best way to translate, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, ever, ever die. There's a double negative right there. He really wants to emphasize that we will not die. Now that's interesting, because Jesus just said, though you die, you will live, and now he's saying you're never going to die. How do we make sense of that? How does this work together? Because now, when you think of Jesus as the life, he's not speaking of a future hope, but he's speaking of a present need. He speaks not only of a future resurrection, but an immediate one. See, Jesus has two kinds of resurrection in his mind. First he speaks, he already did, he spoke of the, the resurrection of the body. That's for Lazarus, right? Lazarus is going to rise up on the last day. But now Jesus speaks what we could call a resurrection of the heart. Paul talks about, uses this exact language in Ephesians 2, 5, 4 and 5. Resurrection of the heart. Jesus, what does that mean? He offers new life. What Jesus was about to do on the cross and what he was about to accomplish by coming out of the grave would change the current reality and current experience in this age right now. It is how God is going to give us new hearts, regenerated hearts. You see, in spiritual terms, thinking spiritually, our, our relationship to God, that is, we're the opposite. We're the exact opposite of what Jesus just the words that Jesus just used in verse 25. The reality of the human heart right now is this. Though we live, we are dead. That's the current status of a heart not resurrected. Though we live, we are dead. There is no life in us. We are walking dead men. Sin causes physical death, sure, but what it has already accomplished is a spiritual death. Each one of us is dead in our sins and transgressions, our, our, how, how we have stepped past the line of God's standards. But praise God, here's the hope, Jesus himself offers to resurrect our hearts from the spiritual grave. He gives us new hearts, new sight, new affections, new loves. He makes us a new creation. And so even though we live, and we do, don't lose this. Don't be, don't be the Christian who is in the bubble land. We live in a broken world. And even though we live in this broken world, Jesus has ushered in a new age, a new world now. Though this age is dead, Jesus brings us life. He is the life. Praise God that we 
though we walk around in death, are alive in Christ. Praise God for that. He offers us a taste, just a taste of what it's going to be like one day. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 1, that we've been given the Spirit as a what? A down payment. We've been given the Spirit as a down payment for the fullness of what it will be like in eternity. We can experience just a taste, an appetizer of eternity right now. And so not only is hope wrapped up in the future, hope is expressed in the present with the living Jesus Christ. See, later in John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus says, because, this is, Jesus and John speak so short sometimes, but it's like packed with power. He says, because I live, you also will live. And just think about that, meditate on it. And, And what is he saying? He's saying something massive. What he is saying here, and what he is saying in John 14, is that his resurrection secures ours. He is our power, the very source of eternal life in us. That's why we get so excited about the resurrection. Did you know that if Jesus died right now again, it would all be over? We need a living Savior. We have to have a living Savior right now. Jesus is holding us together by the power of his life. Critical. So, what are we saying? What is is Jesus saying when he says, I am the resurrection, and the life. You see this in your notes. Jesus creates new life, he sustains new life, and he secures eternal life. Jesus creates new life, sustains new life, and secures eternal life. That is the truth about Jesus. But notice, notice that the Lord of life doesn't just stop with who he is. He doesn't just stop with the truth claim. He wants a response. Martha did you catch that after all these things he says about himself he finishes with this sentence that every person must reckon with do you believe this this isn't just a philosophical conversation about Jesus our resurrection this is are you going to let him in is he going to dominate your life are you going to stake your life on him can he have your heart Martha responds wonderfully yes Lord believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. Okay, so back, there's a ton of theology there, but let's keep on. Now Martha rushes back. Back to the story. Think about, think about what's happening. Think, Lazarus is dead in the tomb for four days. She rushes back to her sister to tell her about Jesus. She, she's thinking, Mary's got to be here. Mary's got to, got to see Jesus. But as she gets back home, she finds Mary the same way she left her. On the floor. You see, Jews, they mourn for seven days. It's custom. It's law. But it was more than a custom for Mary. It was heart. It was misery. Her brother isn't supposed to be dead. Martha tells her that the teacher is calling for her, and she rises from the ground quickly and goes to him. And when she saw Jesus, she raced to him unashamedly distraught and she falls at his feet this wasn't the first time that she had fallen at the feet of Jesus Christ she loved being before her Lord and friend but this time this approach was different it was desperate Mary the sister of Lazarus was miserable 
she refuses to do anything but face the horror of loss. She refuses to be comforted. And for the second time in the same story, we hear a sister of Lazarus use the exact same words, verse 32. The tone has changed, though. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's how she feels. Lord, if you would have just been here, my brother would not have died. Pain. Grief. Shattered. And this time, Jesus doesn't speak. At least not yet. No. This time, Jesus feels as he watches this woman wail. That's what she's doing. She's wailing. As, she, as he watches her beat the ground in defeat, something, this is surprising, something terrifying happens inside of Jesus. The Bible tells us this in verse 33. Jesus sees her weeping. He sees the Jews weeping. And look what it says in the back half of verse 33. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, that's the PG version of this. See, Jesus was more than what we're currently thinking about when we hear the phrase deeply moved. You know what the word here is? All over the New Testament. It's a very common word used in the New Testament. You know what the word is? Rebuke. The word here is emotional outrage. Deep within Jesus, in this moment, with Mary at his feet, bawling her eyes out, the immediate emotion of Christ is this fire-hot, table-flipping anger. He's livid. He's blazing hot in this moment. Now, I hope you're asking, because I was asking all week, what? Why? Why? Why is Jesus angry in this moment? You know what the answer is? Oh, this is a comfort. Because of the way the world is. That's why Jesus is angry. He's angry at the way things are. You see this in your notes, and this is so critical for us. Jesus is outraged at the brokenness of the world. This is a huge theological thing for us to keep in mind. Jesus is outraged at the brokenness of the world. And I should have put this on your notes. This is the most important sentence I could give you in this part of the text. What's happening right now? This is the wrath of God inside Jesus being expressed against the effects of sin and death in the world. Hear me. Hear me. This is really important. This moment that Jesus is deeply moved, he's, he's outraged. This is the wrath of God inside Jesus, the Son, being expressed against the effects of sin and death in the world. This is essential for us if we want to understand what God's character is like. If you want to know, if you want to know what God thinks about sin, what he thinks about suffering, what he thinks about death, start right here. He burns against it. It ignites his wrath. Therefore, we see the word of God made flesh rebuke the way 
things are. Why is this so important? Why is this? This is actually a hope for us. This is a good thing. Not only at the end of time, oh man, can't wait. Not only will God simply just stop pain and sin and brokenness, he's going to judge it. He's going to kick it. He's going to dominate it. One day, we are going to see the wrath of God eternally poured out on this broken system. Praise God for that. Praise God we have a God who doesn't sit idly by and just watch things come and go. He, his, his wrath is ignited against the sin and evil of the world. We need a God like that. So I'm glad that Jesus is outraged because he has to watch his, his, his lovely friend bawling her eyes out for her brother's death. It upsets him greatly. But in his fullness, Jesus continues to reveal himself. Verse 34, now he begins to speak. And he says, okay, where have you laid him? <laughs> I can't imagine. So if he's currently outraged, can you imagine the tone of voice that Jesus has? Where, where is he? Tired of, I'm ready to handle this. I love that. And they said, Lord, come and see. And then there's verse 35. Jesus wept. God the Son is radically simple and perfect. As, or at the same time, that He reveals His wrath, so also does He reveal His grief. He joins His friend. She weeps, He weeps. You weep, he weeps. So not only is Jesus outraged at the brokenness of the world, Jesus weeps at the brokenness of the world. Church family, this is great news for us. Have you ever wondered if Christ cares? Does he care about my situation? Does he care about the things I'm dealing with? What does Christ think about evil in the world? How does he feel when women are trafficked into sexual slavery? That happens. How does he feel when churches abandon the gospel message? How does he feel when he sees poverty kill? How does he feel? How does he feel when a little infant passes away. How does he feel? He grieves. He grieves. He does not ignore it, but in his perfect and mysterious nature, he weeps with those who weep. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's important too. Whatever grief Jesus has in this moment, it is sinless and holy. We have this sinless Savior who suffered. And He knows how we feel in every single circumstance in our lives. And this teaches us. This is fuel for us that we must be like Him. Church, we have experienced this over the past couple weeks and we're going to experience it again. 
We must be the type of church that surrounds one another when clouds are dark and pain is fierce. We must be the type of Christians who walk into grief with others. Christ meets us in our grief. He is an ever-present Savior. Let us imitate Him. Let us walk into grief and let us be present in the midst of it. I'm thankful for this church. Thankful for this church because you have showed that. You have shown that in the last week and a half like I have never seen, never in my life seen a church respond to hardship in our faith family as this one has. Praise God for you. So the story finishes. Finally, Jesus does what we've been waiting for him to do. And I just want to read it as it is. Then Jesus, here it is again, outraged again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, the KJV would say, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, un, un, said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a powerful moment. So good. Did you notice how many times John reminded us that Lazarus was dead? Just right there. Three times. Instead of using his name, he would just call him the dead man. Why would he do that? Because he wants us to see the war between life and death. These are the two great enemies now standing face to face. Imagine the scene. Jesus is standing at a tomb. You see the imagery. The author of life stands at the very mouth of death and says, I am Lazarus. Get out. Oh yeah. That's better than the movies. That's way better what majesty, what authority, what dominance. Jesus is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of death. He owns it all. Who is like him? In but a few days, Jesus would take on death for himself. And unlike Lazarus, who died against his wishes, Jesus, for the joy that set before him, willingly endured the cross and despised the shame. And three days later, he would rise from the grave as the great owner of death. And so the truth that we have for us this morning, what do we, when we stare at hardship, when we stare at difficulties, this is what we can say. Hope is found in Christ alone. The Lord of life and the grave. Hope is found in Christ alone, the Lord of life and the grave. And so as we consider this story, let me ask you what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, hope in this world begins and ends with Jesus Christ. None of us, this is a hard thing to reckon with, but it's true. None of us are guaranteed anything. None. 
the world is broken. We are not guaranteed easy lives, healthy bodies, successful businesses. We're not guaranteed old age. Therefore, there is an urgency to this question. Do you believe this? Have you responded to Jesus Christ? See, Jesus didn't wait for Martha's heart. He, he went after her. And the same is true of this moment. This life is the only opportunity that we have to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Remember how I talked about Jesus as the resurrection and the life? If you are not resurrected in your heart now, you will not be resurrected to eternal life with God. The first resurrection necessitates the second one. Guarantees, excuse me, the second one. Only those who experience a resurrection from the dead will experience a resurrection to eternal life with God. So don't wait until death and expect God to say, yep, it is now. It is now. If you refuse Jesus Christ in this life, you will not be with Jesus Christ in the next. And so we embrace him now while we can. And for Christians, let me say this. Let me say this. There, this is a hope that produces joy. This is a hope that produces joy. Paul writes in Romans 12, rejoice in hope. What does that phrase even mean? Rejoice in hope. That means that the joy that's inside of you has a source, has an anchor somewhere. You know what that anchor is? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I can be happy in all things is because Christ is alive. That's why that new song we sang today is so good. That second verse talks about, hey, are you, is your heart wandering? Is your spirit not satisfied? Remember, Jesus is alive. So don't chase after other hopes because they will not produce lasting joy. Christians, rejoice in hope that we have. Rejoice amidst suffering in the hope that we have. That is what Jesus has for us this morning. Hope is found in Christ alone, the Lord of life, and the grave. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this chapter. It is long. This sermon is long, but we are thankful. We are thankful for the truth that is revealed that as Martha and Mary and eventually Lazarus himself encounter you in John 11, we have hope. It is a lasting hope, a joyous hope. And Lord, I pray Pray for those who do not believe in you in this room. That you would scale back their eyes, peel back their hearts. They might repent of sins, turn from things that don't satisfy, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, their resurrection and life. And for those of us who do believe in you, who are finding joy and trying to sink our teeth into things that won't last, would you remind us the only way to face this life is to meditate on the Savior who is currently at your right hand, alive, interceding, and victorious. We await the day, Jesus, when you will come back. And in the meantime, as we've already sung this morning, we can dance in the midst of darkness. Our hearts can rejoice in the midst of hardship. Oh, thank you, Lord. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for hearing God's word. For those of us who have the hope in Jesus Christ, for those of us who are Christians this morning, we're going to take...
some time to celebrate it through communion, taking the bread and dipping it into the cup as a representation of Christ's sacrifice for us. And so as it comes to your row, you're going to walk outward, take the bread, dip it into the cup, come back to your seat, remain standing, worship together, and then we will partake it together after the song. Thank you.